Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibilities, and how all of these interact and mesh. And so our programming theme this year is Democracy on Trial, and we are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both in the United States and globally. These are not new questions. Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy during his tenures as United States Attorney General, United States Supreme Court Justice, and as the Chief United States Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This is, however, our final tea time for 2022. And during this year, we have convened conversations about democracy, U.S. and global institutions, voting rights, the U.S. Supreme Court, Ukraine, and so much more. And we hope that each of these programs has inspired you to have conversations with your family and friends and your colleagues and to seek out ways to make change in your communities. And for those of you watching this live, remember that you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. So today I am thrilled to welcome back the guest who started off our year of programming under the theme Democracy on Trial. And we'll be talking about the shape and strength of democracy around the world today. So please help me welcome Staffan Lindbergh, who is a professor of political science and director of the VDEM Institute at the University of Gothenburg, Sweden and a founding principal investigator of varieties of democracy, or VDEM. He is the author of Democracy and Elections in Africa, published in 2006, and the co-author of Varieties of Democracy, published in 2020, as well as numerous other books and more than 60 articles on issues such as democracy, elections, democratization, autocratization, accountability, women's representation, and voting behavior. Staffan, thank you for joining me for tea again today. Thanks for having me. So we are talking just a couple of days after the 2022 midterm elections here in the United States. And in January, when we first talked, I started us off with a quote from Robert H. Jackson, who said, democracy, even in the world of today, has different meanings and different contexts. And that still feels like a good place to, to jump into our conversation about VDEM's democracy report of 2022, provocatively titled Autocratization, Changing Nature? Yes. Maybe it should have been autocratization changing its nature rather than <laughs> nature, not to mislead anyone, but all right. Well, and I think it would be helpful just to remind our audience, uh, in case they did not go back to watch our original conversation, what the what the democracy report does and sort of the 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 behind the scenes of that. So if you could start us off there, please. Yeah, behind the scenes is is the VDEM, VDEM project and our measurement of democracy ar around the world that builds on over 450 indicators. And with the collaboration of now over 3,700 country experts, mainly academics, uh, from 180 countries. And then we distill all that in, in the democracy report where we, we focus on really the trends for liberal democracy and which countries are moving forward and which countries are moving backward. That's democratization, autocratization. And then try to look at what is sort of the significant new developments each year that 
that go beyond the sort of tr big trends that we see. Perfect. Thank you. And if I'm, I'm going to try and do this from memory, the four categories are liberal democracy, electoral five. democracy. Oh, five categories. Shoot. Okay. Liberal <laughs> democracy. I'm already not starting off well. Um, electoral <laughs> democracy, electoral autocracy, closed autocracy. And am I missing? Uh, okay. Well, I thought, sorry uh, for interrupting you and, and for misleading you. I thought you were referencing the different varieties of democracy, but you're talking about the different regime types. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Liberal democracies, which is sort of the full-blown type of democracy. Electoral democracies, which is sort of the minimum level, focusing mainly on the representative part that has to do with elections, but also some freedom of association and speech. And then electoral autocracies, which is actually the most common type of regime in the world today. And has been for so for for quite some time. And you can think of Turkey today, right? So there on paper, there are multi-party elections. Some parties are allowed to run in elections, and the elections in in Turkey are somewhat free and fair as a procedure. It's not that there is a lot of of miscounting of ballots or fraud in the electoral process, but a number of opposition politicians are in jail, and a whole bunch of journalists and activists from civil society, but also academics are in jail and a much broader swath are sort of prevented from speaking freely and, and voicing opposition and talking about what the Erdogan regime is doing. So that's an example of electoral autocracy sort of saying, okay, yeah, they have multi-party elections and try to look like a democracy, but they're really not. And then they close dictatorships, the North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and so on. And then since you had started to talk about the five types of democracy, why don't you just end the refresher with that? <laughs> yeah. So at the heart of it really is the representative democracy. Again, that has to do with the elections and we can elect our representatives in free and fair elections. And we have freedom of information so that we can know what they're doing and, and freedom of association. And that's sort of the... Uh, and and if we don't like what what our elected representatives do, we can throw the rascals out, as it were, right? And then we have these other ideas about what democracy should or could be beyond that. And and liberal democracy is is what sort of ideal of liberal democracy is really what we often associate with the United States. Um, so the what that sort of doctrine says is really that electoral democracy. It's good, but it's not enough because it could lead to the majority starting to exercise tyranny over the minority, right? Infringe on individual liberties and, and, and civil rights and minority rights. So what do you need is to constrain the executive power. And in order to do that, then you have things like you recognize probably all listeners here. You have separate elections for a president and a legislature. And in your case, even two parts of the legislature, so that the legislature can act as a check on the president, mm -hmm. right? But also a very strong judiciary that can uphold these civil lib and individual liberties that are enshrined in the Constitution. The, the other types of democracy or varieties of democracy, they emphasize other values. Like that constraining the power to prevent tyranny of the majority, that's one value you can sort of tag on in addition to the representative part. And without going into great detail, sort of participatory democracy said, well, the important part in addition to representative democracy is that the people can rule directly whenever possible. So direct elections, referenda, that sort of stuff. But also between elections have a lot of influence, participatory budgeting at the local level, lots of local representatives. And whereas deliberative democracy associated with the German sociologist Jürgen Habermas say, okay, so electoral democracy is good, but we also need a high quality of debate. We need arguments when elite make, elites make arguments, when we need them to be based on, on facts and on rational reasoning. And they should also be respectful to your political opponents and their counter arguments and if they're good then you should take them on you can think of trump as the antithesis of deliberative democracy ideals and then you have things like egalitarian democracy that 
is more sort of Northern Europe, associated with Northern Europe, although you see it now in different parts of the world, but traditionally, where you say, okay, even the, the political rights in, 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 in the representative party, even voting, is structured and impacted by socioeconomic conditions. So, for example, people who have less education tend to vote less, right? Mm. They tend to exercise their political rights less. And, it, and, and voting is the most egalitarian right we have. When it comes to influence the debate, run for candidate, you know, for as a candidate for party, start a party, run an op-ed in a newspaper. All those sort of forms of political participation are associated with higher education, more influence. Hmm. And then I used to tease you guys, Americans, with like uh, access to healthcare. Well, if you don't have access to healthcare, you have a higher probability of dying young. If you die, you can't vote. Right? <laughs> so with my healthcare, I'm going to live long. I'm going to vote my name more times than you will if you don't have healthcare. And then I have more political rights. So the, the idea here is that we need some equality in socioeconomic conditions for people to exercise their political rights. So those are sort of examples of these varieties of democracy that, that, that we also measure. That's perfect. So let's turn to the 2022 report, which you VDEM releases in March of each year. So we've it's it's been percolating for the last eight months or so. And I think one of the first things I was struck by is that the titles of the last three democracy reports really feature the word autocratization. Prior to that, it was more about democracy. And obviously this year is autocracy changing nature. And right away, what that says to me is democracy is losing ground. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's accurate. It's, it's, it's worse than many people think. Let me put it this way. At the end of 2021, the level of democracy that the average global citizen enjoyed is back to the level we last saw in 1989, before the end of the Cold War. What that means is that that entire expansion of freedoms and rights, liberties that we saw after the collapse of Soviet Union and those crowds just like overrunning the Berlin Wall and throughout in Hungary and other places. And then that wave sort of spread not only to former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, but also in Africa and large portions of Asia. Latin America was ahead, so they had sort of largely become more or less democratic in most places. But that was an enormous sort of almost explosion in a few years. And all of that at a global level has been eradicated. Of course, there are countries that are today still better than they were in 89, right? In Eastern Europe, for example, and some countries in Africa and so on. But at the global level, there has been so much contraction and backsliding, autocratization, that for, for, for the world as a whole, it's been eradicated. There was a statement in the report that has stuck with me. And it says, since democracy is ruled by the people, it matters how many people are enjoying democratic rights and freedoms around the world. And yeah. you, you had started us off by saying that the electoral autocracy is the most common uh, regime across the globe at this point, 60 countries and 5.4 billion people, which I think is about 70% of the world's population, if I did the math correctly. Yeah. So in the report and in, in different sort of academic publications as well, sort of, we, we often look at population weighted measures where we look at trends for different regions or the world as a whole and so on. And sometimes we get critique for that and, and say, well, you know, if you look at it and just take the level of democracy in each country and you divide it by country, then it's not that much of a backsliding in the last 10, 15 years. And that's true. But that sort of presumes that, well, let's not say this is, these are facts. So in the last 10 years, or if I be precise, last eight years, there has been an, an, an increase in the level of democracy in the seashells. And there has been a decline in democracy in India. In fact, we don't classify India as a democracy anymore. It's, it, it tripped over the line and became an electoral autocracy now almost two years ago. And I can go into details with that. But look, I mean, it's, it, it's great 
for the people in seashells that they are getting more democracy and freedom, but it's 90,000 people in that little couple of, you know, it's a set of islands together uh, in the Indian Ocean outside of Africa. India is 1.4 billion people. It matters a little bit more for the world and for more people when democracy is derailed in India. I don't think you can say that, okay, but the increase in seashells compensate for that. That's, that's, that doesn't make sense for me, right? So, and, and what we see in the world today is that a, a bunch of large countries with big populations uh, have declines in democracy. India is one of them. Turkey is another. Uh, Brazil, now they just had an election. Lula comes back. So we'll see what happened. But Bolsonaro is taking it down. And the United States under Trump, right? And leading up to his uh, coming into power. Big countries with big populations, but also important for the rest of the world, right? The world doesn't pay that much attention uh, if, if things happen in the seashells or the Comoros or Liechtenstein or something like that, right? It doesn't affect the rest of the world. But when big regional powers, when they go in this direction or that direction, it means something for other countries. Is autocratization, not sure what word I want here, I'm going to go with epidemic. So you mentioned at the end of the Cold World, there was this Cold War, there was this wave of democratization and it sort of spread across the globe. Is there the likelihood or does autocracy function in the same way? And so it, as more countries become more autocratic, is that a trend that is likely to continue? Like, will it influence their neighbors? Will it, you know, so does does that wave of, is there a possible wave of autocracy? Yeah, we have called it out as the third wave of autocratization. The first wave was in the 1920s, 30s, leading to World War II. And, and the second wave uh, came in the mid-late 60s and then into the 70s with a lot of countries that had become independent after World War II. And the, the, the process of independence was also often sort of a democratization period, even if they didn't become full-fledged democracies, but at least it became better. And then they were shut down by one-party states or military coups and the like. And there were a number of military coups also in, some, in Latin America where countries were older. And then we had this long wave of democratization starting in 1974 with the Carnation Revolution in Portugal, mm -hmm. which was sort of a kind of a failed military coup. Or I mean, the military coup was successful, but then they were overtaken. They didn't intend to democratize. But then people just came out on the streets and it became democratization. Anyway, and that sort of went on in Southern Europe in the 70s, early 80s, and then Latin America picked up and they also start to democratize from military regimes. And then we had this end of the Cold War and this explosion I talked about. Between 1995 and 2005, somewhere it sort of leveled out and then start to, to go back. Hmm. To put this in perspective, just with a couple of numbers. In 1995, we had 72 countries in the world that were democratizing at the same time. They were moving up on the level of democracy at the same time, 72. And that number in 2021 is down to 15, yeah. right? It's like, boom. At the same time in that time period, the number of countries autocratizing have gone up from four to 30, mm. right? And that's the wave of autocratization. And, and the speed in the sense of how many countries are added each year is going up. And yes, we have this saying, diffusion is no illusion, right? Sort of any, any global trend, and this is really a global trend. It's mm -hmm. every region of the world. So every global trend, whether it's in trade or, you know, in, in terms of growth or recession, or any of those, they, they pull country, unlikely countries with them, sort of. It spreads in different ways, right? And, and there are demonstration effects, sort of other countries and leaders or other opposition movements see, oh, they could do it there. Why can't we, right? And you mm -hmm. get inspired, you have that sort of thing. But you also have sort of big, especially with these big countries, like when Trump came into power, 
And I think it was the second day in office, he declared that democracy is no longer a foreign policy priority for the United States. If I'm a little wannabe dictator out there, and I have a lot of trade and maybe aid from the United States, I'm like, all right, let's go. Mm. It's not going to matter anymore, right? So, so there are different mechanisms for this diffusion to work, but it's really there. And that means, yes, that's what we are seeing now is that the, 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 the sort of forerunners here have dragged other countries with them in the, some direct influences like Putin in the former uh, 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 states of the Soviet Union, and obviously with the, with the, with the, the effort of conquering Ukraine yeah. with a war. Uh, as the last expression of that, but also these sort of more diffuse or indirect ways of influencing other countries. One of the questions I had for you after reading the report is, it feels as if the autocratizing countries are also fairly economically well off, which I, I wondered if that was a new development that we, we is it that autocracy used to come from less economically stable countries and is does the fact that more economically prosperous countries are autocratizing does that also create new challenges for this i think if we talk it in terms of level of development like how what's the gdp per capita that has varied over time so in 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 the 20s and 30s there were a lot of relatively wealthy countries by 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 the standards at that time that were autocratizing including of course Nazi Germany, when Germany became Nazi Germany yeah. and the Third Reich. And so it's, it's, but it means more and more, of course, the larger sort of share of especially global GDP, the, the production of wealth in the world that is, is in the hands of autocracies and, and dictators, um, and also the share of trade, like the, there, there is uh, an increasing number of countries over the past 20 years have come to have China as their main trading or largest trading partner instead of the United States. That means something, right? It gives China leverage to push their ideas and they're very aggressive, increasingly aggressive, I would say, especially on the Qi now, in furthering their, their model of political development, as they say, as better. I mean, we should be aware they 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 do that everywhere, and they've stopped sort of even the use of the word democracy. It's it's no longer possible in most UN bodies, as an example, right? And and they're pushing this hard. And of course, the economic relationships matter. And now Europe is starting to worry about, hey, we had all this dependence on Russia. That wasn't so good maybe this dependence on China could be problematic, right? And that's an important realization because it means something. Absolutely. So in January, we talked about how autocrats, uh, takeover is not the word, like how it unfolds. Um, and so it's there's usually some restriction and control of the media. There's the curbing Attacks of academic society. thought, right? Yes, and, and, and the civil society, the NGOs, uh, tamping down on those and then the the polarization uh, of yeah. rhetoric and then undermining the formal systems and there were a couple of elements that were highlighted in this in this year's report that I found illuminating um, and I'm going to start with the the toxic polarization first because I, I hadn't heard of it described with that adjective before before but it makes perfect sense that there is a level of toxicity to the polarization. And so I would love for you to talk about the relationship between that, that polarization and autocratization. Um, and then I have a couple follow-up questions. Yeah, sure. So we measure uh, political polarization and polarization of society with a number of different indicators uh, in collaboration, I should say, with the Digital Society Project, which is sort of a, a sister project that's grown out of VDEM. But what we call toxic is when you reach those higher levels of polarization, sort of regular polarization at the normal level is kind of fine in democracy. It's kind of what democracy is. You and I don't agree about taxation or something, right? That's fine. Yeah. 
we need to have alternatives and then debate and then we vote and then you win and I lose and then next time I win. I mean, that's, that's but toxic polarization is something else, right? It's, and I'm sure you and the, the listeners re, uh, sort of recognize this from, from the debate at home. And this is not partisan. This is, we know this from scientific studies, right? When you start to talk about political opponents as enemies, as enemies of our way of life, as enemies of the nation. That's a very slippery slope. We know where that leads. That's what they did in Nazi Germany. That's mm -hmm. how Nazi Germany became Nazi Germany. That's what they did very effectively in a short period of time in Rwanda leading to the genocide. Because what do you need to do with enemies? Well, the first thing, is maybe uh, 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 constrain their political rights and civil liberties and eventually throw them into jail and then get rid of them. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's a really, really dangerous path. And it's anti-democratic, it's anti-pluralist as a, as, a, as, a, as a strategy. And it is a strategy and we now see it. So we recorded this now in 40 countries in the world. It's not only you guys, and it's not only one or two more countries, 40 countries where that have reached these toxic levels. And there is a very clear relationship, right? The level of that polarization rises first, and then democracy levels go down. Then you start to dismantle the, the core institutions of democracy, starting typically with media, and civil society, the people that can sort of object to this and academics, but the, the others are more important. <laughs> and, and then after that, you start to undermine the, the core institutions of democracy like elections and claim that they are not functioning properly and there's fraud and other things. Have you ever heard about that? Mm -hmm. And then that gives you a justification for imposing your own system or tilt it and fix it so that you will not lose. That's what Orban has done in Hungary, changing electoral laws and so on. So it's virtually impossible for the opposition to lose. And we can go down the line. So it's a dangerous path and there's a very close relationship between polarization first and then derailing democracy. Do you have recommendations or thoughts on ways to mitigate that, that polarization? So I think my fear is that we of the 40 countries are getting entrenched enough in our positions that there is no way to reach. And, and maybe it's nibbling at the edges, maybe, you know, but as people are aligning, well, I only trust the news from these particular sources. I only talk to these particular people. I get, you know, I only believe this particular part of our elected representation. How do we start breaking down those silos? Yeah. It's, I, I cannot say that we have a scientific answer to that uh, because we don't. Yep. There are historical instances, some of which I've talked about that end in war or civil war and you fight it out and then it becomes so bloody and so bad that eventually everybody realizes, okay, let's not do this anymore, right? That's a pretty high cost. 20 million in, 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 in World War II, plus the 20 million that Stalin killed eventually. But, you know, or the Rwanda genocide and things like that. So, so that's one path to go down. There are a couple of instances lately that Ecuador and South Korea had these developments, but the, the polarization re didn't really reach toxic levels, mm. but it was heading towards it. And they managed to turn around. People were protesting. There were people, a lot of protests. The judicial system stood up and eventually sort of stood up against the attacks by the incumbent. And eventually the party in question then got rid of the leadership and reformed back to some sort of normality. And then things have turned around. I mean, I wouldn't say Ecuador is completely out of the bush yet, but at least it's sort of heading in the right direction. But again, polarizations were not a, a polarization was, was not as at a as high level as in the US currently. So it's not clear whether that sort of 
uh, trajectory would be possible. I would like to think it's possible. I just know that it's very dangerous the way it is now. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I would like to say, I think the polarization that we see today in the world is is fed by and 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 fueled by misinformation and disinformation, if you like. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that takes place on, on social media, on the internet, right? Uh, and and dark places, or you know, the dark uh, net as well. I think we are a point in history where we need to find a way to regulate and constrain freedom of speech at the global level in order to save it. Mm. The historical parallel is World War II, where the question that countries faced in Europe was how to constrain and, and, and filter, if you like, freedom of association to save it. So we didn't, would not have Nazi and fascist organizations again come over and take over and then do away with freedom of association. Now, that unregulated freedom of speech is becoming a threat to freedom of speech and democracy. Mm-hmm. And nationally, we, we, I mean, the U.S. Is, is a little bit of an outlier with the very few limits of freedom of speech. You can wear a Nazi flag in, 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 in the U.S. In most of Europe, that's illegal, right? But countries have had, after World War II, also sort of limitations on freedom of speech and the filtering function by the main media so that conspiracy theories and falseness and all this fake news, the lies, they, they, didn't, they didn't get that, that space, right? Mm-hmm. And democracy dies with the lies. Democracy needs a foundation on truth. If political leaders, without naming names, if political leaders can lie about what they do, what they didn't do and say, I did this, but you didn't. And even if it's on camera and then people believe it, then that accountability between what politicians say and do and what they don't and voters disappear. We don't need elections anymore then, yeah. right? We need a foundation of truth. And, and that's why this disinformation that's going on today is so dangerous in the long run. Well, and in the United States, even, you know, the first amendment is, is a great is a great power, but it really only, I don't think anymore the average American understands what the First Amendment actually means. It it doesn't mean you get to say anything. It means that the government can't censor you, more or less. And it also doesn't mean that because you said something, there might not be consequences to what you said. And so that it seemed, I feel as if this is the rhetoric I hear most often with regard to the First Amendment at this point is, well, that's my First Amendment right to say that. Sure, but people are going to react to what you say and you don't have a protection from that. No, no. Yeah. And, and even maybe more fundamentally, sort of the, the core of the old liberal tradition is that you have a right to exercise your freedoms as long as it doesn't infringe on other people's freedoms. Right. Now, yeah. If you start to use speech to threaten other people so that they don't dare to use their, use their freedom of speech, mm-hmm. then you are infringing on their rights. Yeah. And this uh, freedom to form an opinion and, 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 and think and all that, if you feed them with disinformation so that people are, you know, that was the old Soviet propaganda, right? That was, that was, to indoctrinate people with something that was false, then you're undermining their autonomy as human beings. So, so that type of exercise of freedom of speech is actually anti-liberal. Mm-hmm. That, that will be an interesting concept for people to noodle on in our audience because that, that, that freedom of speech is always held up as the bastion of liberalness. Um, there was one other thing in the report and you touched on it briefly when you were just talking that I also want to make sure our audience understands. And that is the role that we all have in this as well. And you, there was a, a section in the report about how mobilization against anti-democratic or the slippery slope, even if it's not fully anti-democratic, is significantly reduced. You know, the, the populaces are not protesting 
uh, as they once did. They they are passively letting this happen. Yeah, that's one of the greatest power that we see sort of historically that people have. Go out in protest, mass protest, organize, right? That can, uh, uh, my good friend and colleague, Andreas Schedler, who's written a lot about both democratization and autocracies, in one of his uh, writings, he called it magic protest. And, and we saw this in a lot of Eastern European and, and former Soviet republics. And Ukraine was one of them, right, with their mass protest on the Maidan Square that just made it impossible for the regime to stay in power. So it doesn't always succeed, but it, but it can be very powerful. And dictators and wannabe dictators know that. That's why they want to prevent it by all means possible. Mm-hmm. And misinformation, disinformation is one way to do that, right? And pitch different groups against each other is another way, sort of divide and rule, right? The, 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 the old Roman uh, device. Yeah. So that's something people should really be aware of. And I think, yes, it is and has been, it has often been, and I think it can still be one of the sort of last resort measures that, that you can take when a government starts to become oppressive. I'm going to remind our audience to ask their questions and we do have a couple, uh, but I'm going to, before we get to those, I'm just going to ask you to talk about the case for democracy. So when we spoke in January, this was um, a newer effort uh, from VDEM Institute. And I would, my understanding at this point is that there have been a number of papers that have been written under this auspice. I think there's been a conference as well. And I would love for you to talk about what the goals are for the case for democracy. Basically, the European Commission and others uh, came to uh, ask to, uh, um, ask us, what is the counter narrative to China? China says they are better in all these international fora. They say that their development model is better and they have better results in terms of sort of instrumental outcomes of, of whatever system you have. So we took up the challenge and gathered uh, scholars who have been working on these issues in an number of different fields, sort of from epidemiology and to um, human health and economic development and peace and climate change and and pull together the what was out there, not doing our own new studies, but look at the top journals, the hardest in the Lancet, in British Medical Journal, in Nature and so on. Look at the best possible studies that were there and collate them. And and showing a number of areas, sort of economic growth, democracies grow better, and they avoid the worst financial crisis outcomes uh, much better than, than autocracies do. And countries that democratize get much higher economic growth than they would have had if they stayed autocracies. Human health, if you go from a, uh, a, a, an autocracy to a good democracy, infant mortality on average goes down by 94%. Huh. Life expectancy grows when countries become uh, democracies and so on, because democracies, politicians in democracies then have to sort of invest some of the wealth in things that are good for people. And in all countries except the United States, that tends to translate into national health insurance systems and <laughs> stuff like that, so that everybody actually has it. But anyway, and, but, but, but also with climate change, like democracies are making much more yeah, much more uh, of commitments on the Paris agenda, uh, Paris Accord. They're also better at implementing those commitments so that reductions in CO2 levels in democracies is much greater and so on. And this actually accounts to, by some studies say that it's, it accounts to a difference in minus 1.6 degrees globally. Wow. That's kind of big. Yeah, that's very significant. Um, yes. So we're not talking about some small marginal insignificant, no, these are big things, right? And, and then peace and war, right? We, this is almost like an iron law. Democracies do not fight wars with each other. And they also have much lower instances of civil war and other forms of violent conflict. And when they do have them, they are less deadly. In Russia, the level of democracy that was in Russia in 96, when Putin started to ascend to power, at that level, Russia would never have invaded Ukraine. Hmm. We know that. So... These are important things for sort of outside of democracy itself. It has a lot of 
important effects for, for, for people in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One of the questions we have received is whether you see an improvement in the United States uh, in the last year, two years since uh, the regime change from Trump to Biden. I will start off by saying my recollection from the report is that there is um, I can't remember if it, there. I can't remember what level we're talking about now, and I'm sorry for that. But there was something that says that things are a little bit better under Biden, but not back to the levels they were before Trump. Yes, that's correct. In, um, it's it's not even really better, but it's sort of flattened out. But hey, the uh, wasn't that much time between Biden getting into power and then our last data point at the end of 2021. Uh, so. So it's it's hard to see any radical changes in that short time. And then much of the underlying difficulties with American democracy, uh, they, they are still there. Mm-hmm. But um, we will see now when we update the data here in January and then in the spring and see if, if, if we can see that, that things have changed uh, more. All right. We have a question from someone who recently traveled to Turkey and said that they were along the coast, but felt that people seemed fairly free to criticize Erdogan there. And so are you seeing improvement in Turkey or is Turkey one of those places that maybe is just sort of bifurcated? You know, the the, the farther away you move from Istanbul, the, the more autocratic it becomes. Yeah, it's certainly uneven within Turkey. And then if you go along the coast and there are sort of tourist areas, then much more is allowed, right? Because you don't want to beat people up in the streets in front of tourists, all right? So so there is an aspect to that. And then the electoral autocracies like Turkey, they are also smart about it, right? They they don't want to apply more oppression than they have to to stay in power. And they want to be able to say that, hey, we're still democratic. We have some opposition here and people can say some criticism and blah, blah, blah. So they allow a limited amount of that. Orban also does that in, 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 in Hungary, right? But they make sure that there's enough pressure and in both cases, for example, control of essentially all the media in the country and, and close down, find ways to close down universities or civil society organizations and the like that are really sort of threatening them, right? But then allow some little pluralism for, you know, making things look good. Mm -hmm. One of the elements of the report that we didn't touch on were the number of coups that happened uh, in the the previous year and how I I think the phrasing was rash actions are becoming more common. What, What does that tell us? Yeah, we'll see if the if the trend continues. But it was a sort of a, a stark difference there in in twenty twenty one with six coups and a number of coup attempts. But you never know how many because some of them are not displayed and all that. Sure. But there were five military coups, and then there was this palace coup in in Tunisia, where basically from within, and that's you know a whole lot more than we've seen in the past twenty years on an uh, annual average. So it seemed to us that that's another sign that in the international community now, so many countries autocratizing and a number of countries becoming autocracies, that there is much less, many fewer governments that really care whether you see a coup there or not, or have, uh, you know, an attention span to really put emphasis on it and all that. And so it's sort of a, a symptom of of what is happening, that, that things are they're becoming more brash or more, you know, they're, they're, the bar for, me, for, 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 for conducting a coup has sort of lowered. Right? Is there a correlation there between coup attempts and how much they think the world is paying attention to them? Is that, you know, if it, if it, you know, one of our, at the beginning of this conversation, it was sort of along the lines of, if we are all our brother's keepers, then we sort of all keep each other in check. And so is it that so many countries have either turned inward and are really, you know, self-focused versus global community focused that allows them to think that this will be okay? Yeah, I think that's, there are, there are more instances of elites or 
individuals in countries reasoning like that, like, oh, well, the penalties are maybe not going to be as, as bad as 10 years ago, uh, and therefore take, take more radical action. Um, mm. And that's a bad sign. Um, there is a new endeavor under uh, VDEM's banner called the International Scientific Panel on Democracy. Uh, and I know it's, it's sort of fledgling at this point, but could you say a little bit about what the purpose of that will be or is? Yeah, in extension of this work we did on the case for democracy, then a lot of us who are sort of scholars from various different fields and the climate scientists and the epidemiologists and so on, and we came together and said that, you know, this sort of fact-finding analysis should be done on a broader scale in a more systematic way both in terms of describing the trends for democracy like we do, but also in, in terms of seeing what are the effects on people's lives of having democracy versus autocracy. So we sort of framed it as, you know, look at climate. Uh, we have the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change. We need an IPCC for democracy that can regularly with the highest and best scientific methods work together as a community to really establish what the facts are and where we're heading and what the consequences of that be, will be. How many millions of, of newborns will die? How many more will die if the world becomes more autocratic? Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And how much more climate change will we have? And how many more wars and then people dying from those wars? That sort of projections based on hard scientific analysis, we think is needed for the world to re really realize what the, what the consequences are. And so we have put that together in, in what's in those, or, you know, you call it the concept note where you lay out what the goals and the sort of guiding principles and how this would operate. And it's now being circulated around governments among democracies, of course, it's not something that China would support, obviously, or Saudi Arabia or Russia or the uh, Iran or others. And, and we are hoping that a coalition of like-minded democracies in the world would, would get behind it at some point. Uh, these things always take a number of years to, to sure. sort of develop, but, but that's, the, that's the core idea. That's great. Okay, we're gonna move into our lightning round. This is my, my favorite part. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? I wish in the United States. You can do United States, you could do global, you could do one of each, if, if whatever comes to mind. Yeah, in the United States, I would wish that people paid more attention to how far the norms for what was normal democracy in the United States 20, 30 years ago, and how far it's gone now to accepting clearly illiberal use of free speech that we talked about, but also mm -hmm. other, you know, attacks on opponents and threats and all these kinds of things that would be being completely unacceptable by any on the political spectrum in Ronald Reagan's time. Okay, that, that's good food for thought. Absolutely. What do you see as some of the greatest threats to democracy? And we've talked about a number of them, but is there one in particular? Yeah, we talked a number of them, but I, in the, in the, in the, I, I would say the the use of the internet and social media in particular and darknet to spread disinformation, misinformation, and indoctrinate people with lies. That's the biggest threat in the long run. Okay. What do you see as some of the greatest opportunities? The greatest opportunities are with the people. That people will want freedom and rights and stand up for them and when necessary go out in mass protests. That's the oh. biggest, biggest hope for the future. Yep. Uh, anybody you would suggest for our audience to be reading, to be listening to any articles or podcasts, books, sort of runs the gamut? There's a terrific podcast in America called Democracy Paradox with a, a series of relatively sh short discussions like this uh, and some even shorter with with uh, professors that have contributed, but on on real world issues that have to do with democracy, I, I think that's a that's a very good, very good series. That's perfect. Okay. Besides you. yours, of course. 
thank you. Thank you for the plug. I, I definitely appreciate that. Thank you. A couple of upcoming programming notes as we are wrapping up. So December 13th, the Robert H. Jackson Center will celebrate its anniversary. It will be our 22nd anniversary on our Founders Day with an open house. This year, we are honoring our current and former board members who have helped make us the organization that we are. So if you are in the Jamestown, New York area or could be in the Jamestown, New York area on Tuesday, December 13th, please do come by. That will be from 5 until 7 p.m. A reminder that Giving Tuesday is November 29th. That's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving in the United States. If you have enjoyed our programs, Tea Times, the in-person, our author webinars, or the webinars we did on justice for Ukraine, please consider making a donation to the Robert H. Jackson Center. And you can do that on our website or by reaching out to us. And as I mentioned at the outset, this is our final tea for 2022. In December, we will announce our theme for 2023. And we look forward to continuing these conversations with all of you. And Stefan, thank you so much for joining me for tea again today. We really appreciate it. This was a perfect wrap up to our year on Democracy on Trial. Well, thanks for having me again. Thank you, everyone. And enjoy the rest of your year. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook live events produced by the Jackson Center whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.